Good morning. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption. Today's reading is from Galatians 3, 15 through 22. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is God's word for us today. Let's go to the word in prayer. Father God, just as we were singing, be still my soul on the heels of difficult news, O God, we are reminded that you are the only one who can still our hearts when the storms of life range. We ask, O God, now that you would open our hearts to your word that we would receive it <clears throat> gladly, and that we would recognize, Lord God, that it is through your word that our minds can be stayed on you, that we will experience your perfect peace. Thank you that we can turn to you in all things at all times, and you always respond according to your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, be sure that you have your Bibles open. If you're using the Bibles in the pew, you'll find our text on page 973 because we're going to be referring not only to uh, the text today, but we're going to be going a little, uh, looking at chapter 2, we're going to be looking a little bit at chapter 4. We are calling this series through Galatians, The Family <clears throat> Only God Can Create. And I have to tell you, it's been uh, a pleasant surprise. I've really enjoyed uh, studying this letter together because it's really helped me to see the bigger picture. That is to say that while my Christian faith started with this one-on-one -on -one, uh, confrontation with a holy God dealing with my wicked heart, which he made clean, I'm learning through this study on the heels of uh, our study with Abraham that it was for a far greater purpose than getting saved and knowing I was going to heaven, as great of a truth as that is. 
but it has been great understanding that Christianity, it isn't like golf, an individual sport, but it is about a family. It's about God's family. It's about a large body of people who have been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, set apart for his work and his glory. A massive body of people of all nationalities made up of local churches, these smaller bodies like us here at Redemption, like Christ the King, who we prayed for. And this has been God's plan from the very beginning. When just as Carl read, God took Abraham outside and declared, look toward heaven, Abraham, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. In the same manner as our faith in Christ, the offspring God was talking about has been accounted to us as righteousness and brought us into this family of fellow believers. Family is important. Amen? Isn't it? Family is important. And it is especially important to God. We read in Galatians 4.28 that Paul refers to the Christians in Galatia as brothers like Isaac, children of promise. Sons of Abraham, as we saw last week. Last Sunday, Jenny and I, along with many other family members, we gathered in Omaha, Nebraska, where I had the privilege of officiating my niece's wedding. And for the most part, it was a wonderful time. We, we had a great time. But I, I say for the most part, because so many who were there, uh, Jenny and I included, uh, come from broken families. And as many of you know, when that is the case, and you hear the conversations of families who've been together for decades, when you hear the toasts of families that have been together for decades, you realize that they have something you once had that you will never have again. That sense of belonging to one unified family. And it can be in those times, as again, many of you know, incredibly painful. But God... But God stepped in, and he fixed it. He stepped in, and he fixed it. How did he fix it? By creating a new family, a family that will never be broken, a family that will last forever. And if you are in Christ, look around at those around you. Like it or not, you're part of their family, and vice versa. And we will be brought together for eternity. And for some of us, you might be thinking, oh, no. I've got to spend eternity with John and Christy. I mean, Christy, great, but John? And I say, yeah, let's not waste time. Let's start getting ready now. Let's start preparing for, by learning how to love and care and embrace one another now. I love the words of Jesus. I put it on the screen for you. It's from the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus 
Uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Are you taking advantage of the family of God that we have together? What a blessing it is to pray for those who have have moved or for, for those who are hurting. What an opportunity we have. We must never lose sight of that. Last week, Pastor Danny concluded with this takeaway, God's son was crucified to get you into his spiritual family. And this is at the heart of what Paul is emphasizing in his letter to the churches in Galatia. He's he's writing to remind them of what the will of God is in regards to the spiritual family he has called his children to be a part of and how it is you get in. And he begins right out of the starting block in chapter 1 expressing this deep concern, astonishment, that they were turning away from the grace of Christ to the law, to circumcision a different gospel, which he emphatically stated was no gospel. And he emphasizes the purity of the gospel and how it must be preserved, established according to God and not to man. And he took great care, describing for years how he didn't meet with uh, anyone of of, uh, importance after his conversion, lest he be swayed in any way by man's interpretation of the gospel. And he maintained that position throughout his ministry. Uh, Look at this verse on the screen uh, of Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth. He said this, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling with my speech and my And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why? Well, he made it clear in that letter that he didn't want anything to add anything, or he, he didn't want it to add anything, why? Lest the cross be emptied of its power. And Paul's aim was that the truth of the gospel, if you look at Galatians 2, verse 15, he says that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for them. And God has sovereignly ordained that it would be preserved for us as well. We see in the latter part of uh, chapter 2, Paul makes this very clear, makes it very clear that a person is justified uh, by faith and not by the law. And then last week, look with me at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and th- through 3. He, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirits by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, he says? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They had started off strong until they started listening to others, adding to the gospel things that God never intended. They had been bewitched. And so we pick up here in verse 15. There's so much in the remaining verses of chapter 3, it it would be easy to rush through, but we want to take our time, and so we're going to break it up. I'm going to look this morning at uh, verses 15 through 22, and then Pastor Daniel will pick up there to the remaining verses next Sunday. Now, there's no question as we look at our text that this morning our text is on God's promise. There are 149 verses in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and the word promise is found 11 times. And this morning, we're only going to look at eight of those 149 verses in which we see seven of the 11 uses of promise. Is there any question about what he's trying to get across here in this text? The very first use of promise we we saw mentioned in our text last week. Look at verse 13 of Galatians 3. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith, the first use of the word promise, the promised spirit through faith. Now, I find it so encouraging when I consider that text in light of the role of the Holy Spirit as it relates to this new family. Look at this slide in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Do you hear the familial language? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This word, Abba, Father, it's a, it's a very tender word. Abba, as you see on the screen, is the word framed by the lips of infants and betokens unreasoning trust. And Father expresses an intelligent apprehension of the relationship. And so these two together, they express the love and intelligent confidence of the child. And then look with me, jump to chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. We see the same thing. He's writing and he's telling them, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. There it is again. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
Which brings us to Paul's claim in our text this morning, and that is this. It is only through faith in God's Son that we become part of the promised family. It is only through faith in God's Son that we become part of the promised family. And so we're going to look at three things this morning that Paul is presenting here. The first is the certainty of a promise, the certainty of a promise. We find that in Galatians 3.15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, I have to admit to you, this verse was a bit puzzling to me when I first read it. I had to give it a lot of thought. I asked myself, why would Paul start by using a human example to describe the stability of something so divine? Human promises are so unstable. They're casually made. They're quickly broken. And yet, as I pondered it, it dawned on me that it is true that once a promise is made, it cannot be changed. It can be broken, and promises are broken often, but it doesn't change them. This afternoon, in much the same way as my niece and her fiance did last weekend, Eddie and Michelle, they're going to be exchanging wedding vows promises before God and those who are present that they will love and cherish and care for one another until death. You see, Paul is saying once a promise is made, it cannot be altered. And breaking the promise doesn't change the promise or it doesn't nullify the promise. And thanks be to God, not only does he make promises, but they are promises that will never be broken. And that's something that's so important to remember because in the craziness of just life in general and the unexpected things, we can begin to question the promises of God. They will never be broken, ever. And some of us have had multitudes of promises uh, uh, broken that can seem to have devastated our lives in many respects. God never does that. And Paul is emphasizing that that God has made a promise to Abraham that is carried to this day and will continue forever. The next thing Paul begins to talk about is God's promise to Abraham. He goes from the human example to God's promise to Abraham, and he describes the promise God made to Abraham, and notice, though it was thousands of years before he was born, the promise pointed to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. God's promise to Abraham pointed to Jesus. And then Paul goes on to address the law, which will lead to the purpose of the law, and he draws attention to when the law was given. Look at verse 17. This is what I mean. He makes it clear. This is what I'm saying. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant 
previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, the magnitude of what is going on here at this time and what prompted the writing of this letter cannot be overstated. This was a diabolical attempt by the enemy through these Judaizers to add to the gospel through the insistence that they keep the Mosaic law by being circumcised. This is what the, the first recorded church council was all about, the Jerusalem council when some men had come from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was, uh, just imagine, if you're a Gentile, imagine that you're hearing uh, it question as to whether you're saved or not. And they send delegates to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders to address uh, the question, and there was, it says there was much debate about it, and if you look at the slide, uh, we read about what was going on in Acts 15. It says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared, and they declared all that God had done with them, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary uh, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And in reality, what they wanted is they wanted them to be a part of their family. They wanted them to be a part of the idea of, uh, of their family and ignoring that there was this, this new family, hence the wrong family the wrong way. I'll never forget in ninth grade when we had to connive, and uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time, and uh, lie, uh, to our parents. Uh, three of us wanted to go camping. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm not sure our parents were, sm they were smart enough to know that good things weren't going to ha happen for ninth, ninth, uh, ninth graders to go camping by themselves. There were four of us that hung out all the time together, and I don't know what it was, and I'm ashamed that it could very well have been me leading, uh, but we decided that, that only three of us should go, and Dave should not go and be a part of us. And uh, we, talked, we talked amongst ourselves and uh, decided we needed, we needed to let him know he wasn't going to be able to go. And, uh, and I was... I volunteered, or I can't quite remember, but I was the one that told him. And I just remember the, the hurt on his face. To this day, it just grieves me that that happened. You see, there is a sinful nature about us that wants to be part of an exclusive group at the exclusion of others. And most often, if not all of the time, it's because we want to puff ourselves up and we want to make ourselves more important than others. It's how we think in our sin nature. In essence, this is what these Judaizers were trying to do. And it is a sober reminder to us of what we can be guilty of as well. There is no partiality with God. We saw that earlier in chapter 2. Look at Galatians 2, verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. We're going to really see this even more clearly next week. 
And so Paul says, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, it does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Well, what was his point? He tells them, look at verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, they were trying to force a dependence on the law to save in order to bring into the family of God something that was impossible. If there's any other way than, than faith in God's Son to bring us into the family, the promise wouldn't have been needed, is what Paul is alluding to. And with that, Paul answers two rhetorical questions he knew they would be asking, questions that <clears throat> we've thought of as well, questions we might be even asking ourselves uh, in, in the moment. And in verses 19 through 22, he addresses the relationship between the law and the promise. Why then the law? Verse 19. This rhetorical question that he answers, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he, he tells us a couple of things about the law. First, he says the purpose. He says it was added because of transgressions, because of sins against God that would hold people captive until Jesus came. And then he says how it was put into place. It was put into place through angels. Just prior to his death in Moses' blessing to those awaiting entrance, entrance into the promised land, land, he said this, I put it on the screen in Deuteronomy. Moses said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sire upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he addresses those who are about to stone him, look at Acts 7 on the screen. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It was put into place through angels, Paul says, by an intermediary. In other words, it was God's idea, Moses being the mediator, and Paul says that the mediator was not of one, it was, or, or not of one party. Uh, look at this uh, quote by Merrill Unger. He said this, here the contrast is between the promise given to Abraham and the giving of the law through Moses. The law was a covenant enacted between God and the Jewish people requiring fulfillment by both parties. But with the promise to Abraham, all the obligations were assumed by God, which is implied in the statement, but God is one. So the second question they ask is, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And what does Paul say? Verse 21, certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be, it would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, what we see here is so important. The law and the promise go hand in hand in that the law points to the need for the promise. Paul makes the point that if the law could have saved, it would have, and there would be no need for the promise. But instead, it was given, notice verse 22, to imprison everything under sin. And I want you to just think about, before you came to Christ, uh, how sin imprisoned you. I want you to think about it if, if maybe you're here and you haven't come to faith in Christ or some of the things you're hearing are new. Think about how sin imprisons us. We read in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, when you get that speeding ticket and, and you know you were speeding, and you're trying to figure out, what am I going to say? That, that's always a dilemma for a Christian, isn't it? When they get pulled over, what am I going to say? Well, you're going to tell them you were speeding. <laughs> that's, that's what you're going to say. You wouldn't know if you were speeding unless what? Unless there was a law that said, this is the speed limit. You go over it, and then you're faced with a dilemma. What do I make up to uh, try to justify why I was speeding? Um, just remember the truth sets you free. Sometimes a fine will come along with it, but still, nonetheless, before the Lord, the truth will set you free. Do you remember when you were imprisoned by your sin? This is what the law was intended to do. It was to render us helpless without hope, in a desperate state, needing to be rescued. And Jesus is that rescuer. Uh, Look at verse 23, which we'll be looking at next week. Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, Paul explains the certainty of a promise. He presents God's promise to Abraham, and then he shows us the relationship between the law and the promise. So, what is our takeaway from this? What do we do with what we've seen this morning? <clears throat> well, there are two things that come to mind. And the first may seem a bit surprising or even maybe even a little bit of contradiction. The first one is that the law is good. And you may be thinking, now wait a minute. I thought you said that the law, uh, that Paul was saying that the law was to imprison us, was to, to show us the need for the promise. I thought we were no longer under the guardian. And that is true in the sense that first we would acknowledge that the law is good because it is our inability to keep any sort of law that would improve our relationship with God. 
And it is the law that brings us to repentance, to the need for Christ. Because the standard that has been set by God is perfection. And that's summarized at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Hold your place there in, in Galatians and head over to the left to the very first gospel, the very first book in the New Testament, the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. The gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Don't lose your place in, uh, in Galatians. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Look at the words of our Lord. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes, we know, were those who interpreted the Mosaic law ad nauseum, adding all kinds of, of things. And the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders who committed their lives to keeping the letter of the law. As Jesus continues, look at verse 21. You've heard, that it said, you, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, you are liable to the hell of fire. And then look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And he continues. He describes the danger of taking oaths lightly. He describes how we're called to offer our other cheek if we get slapped, how we're to love our enemies, those who persecute you, and more. And then he concludes, jump down to verse 48 of chapter 5, you therefore, he lays the standard here, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the law is good because it draws us to the impossibility of perfection apart from being perfected in Christ. It's good in that it draws us to salvation by declaring us guilty before a holy God with Jesus as our only hope. And the law is good after we come to faith. Uh, look at um, that, go back to Galatians and look at chapter six, look at verse two. We read in chapter 6, verse 2, when we get there, bear one another's burdens. Why are we to do that? That's what we did this morning in prayer. We bear, we bore the, the burden of our sister and what's going on in her family. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
Consider the story of the rich young ruler who approached Jesus. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Keep the commandments, Jesus said. Which ones? Jesus told him, you shall not murder or commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love others as yourself. Rich young ruler, oh, good. I've kept all these from my youth. But then he says, what do I still lack? He knew something wasn't right. Jesus replied, if you would be perfect, required for eternal life, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Matthew tells us when the young man heard this, he went away sad. Why? Because he had many possessions, and he loved those possessions more than God. The disciples were astonished when they heard that. And they said to Jesus, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, what what we must never forget, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There are things that we can allow in our lives that can hinder our relationship with Christ, even good things. And the law can help us. I listened to a great response to this question. How do we obey the moral law without being moralistic? There's a lot of talk and fears of being moralistic. What does it mean to be moralistic? It means to be overfond of making moral judgments about others' behavior. That's what it means. That's, that's, we, that it's, in essence, it's what the, the Pharisees were doing. Well, we're concerned that they're not doing certain things. So how do we obey the moral law without being moralistic? Sinclair Ferguson, uh, one of the gentlest, gracious teachers of God's word, I love just listening to him. He could talk about nothing, and I would just be blessed. He just has that tender, loving voice. And he began talking about his love for golf and how golf has rules, and he'd never met a golfer who said, if I move the ball closer to the hole, is that all right? And he made the point, the game ceases to exist when you don't play according to the rules. Now, he's not talking about the law leading to salvation here. He's talking about its value for living a Christian life. Look at the quote on the screen. He said this, the law is telling us that this is the master plan for your life, and you only function as the image of God as you give expression to these principles in your life. And as we do that, trusting in the Lord, there is no real danger that we will become legalistic. I think it's true that people, many people, just say obedience to the law is legalistic because actually what they, uh, what they are irritated by is the notion that anybody would tell them what to do. But if you are Christian, Jesus tells you what to do. He says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. So faith in Christ produces love for Christ. Love for Christ produces a desire to be like Christ. Christ fulfilled the law, and so being like Christ fulfills the law. We mustn't embrace the goodness of the law to lead us salvation and then, and then cast it aside as having no further use. So the law is good. And with our eyes on Christ, 
we can put fears of, of legalism or, or moralism, we can put that aside with our eyes fixed on Christ and his word. And the second takeaway, and quite important, is that God's promise is certain. Look at the, uh, on the screen, 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Christians in Corinth, he writes this, so comforting. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but him, in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Luke's gospel, we read of an instance where Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth. He customarily went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. He opened the scriptures, and he read from the prophet Isaiah, he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It says that Jesus rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and with all eyes fixed on him, he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, thereby declaring himself to be the promised Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And it is only through faith in God's Son that we become part of the promised family. Christians are living proof of God's promise. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it. We thank you, Lord God, for the way that you chose the most unlikely of people ever to bring this message, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who was intent on destroying what you intended to create. Oh, Lord, may that be a reminder to us that your promise is sure that it cannot, by your word and by your mighty name, be broken. Oh, Lord, may we look to you in faith as we rejoice in becoming not only part of the promised family, but that that family will be for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.